0: Well, good morning, my name is Bill, I'm one of the pastors here, and um, this morning we are continuing our series that we've been in since the dark and cold of January on the life of David. This is the once a month where we preach live in both rooms, and it's also the third week in the midst of this big series about the life of David in what you might call the mini-series about the complete crash of the life of David. It's the three weeks where we're slowing down and we're dwelling on how this great king got himself into a spot where he did things he never imagined he would have done. You know, the darkest of the darkest of his soul and of his life. And, and the reason it's so important to do that, it'd be really tempting to just sort of skip by that stuff, but we wouldn't be faithful to our Bible if we did. Because the Bible actually goes the exact opposite way. It doesn't give us great big heroes who soar epically and never do wrong. The Bible gives us real people who mess up and crash and make a complete hash of their entire lives. People like us. Or maybe we better say, people that we're like. And so we are looking over these three weeks, two weeks ago, at the events themselves, the story of David his moments with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, his destruction of his legacy. Last week, we looked at how it came to light. And then today, with Psalm 51, we look at the state of David's heart in the middle of all that. So let's pray together, and then let's look at Psalm 51 together, if you'd pray with me. God, our Father, we, we come to this psalm and... We pray that it would not just glance by us, that we would not just bounce off it, that we would actually hear it, that we would actually be changed by it. Um, Lord, in the sinfulness of our own hearts, we don't want to. It's a lot easier not to. But we pray that you would give us bread and not a stone, that your word would sink into our hearts in a way that not just our minds but our lives are different. Would you do that in us and for us and even through us looking at your word together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the um, titan of Western philosophy, Anigo Montoya, once said to one of his associates, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And we are so prone to that in Christianity. We keep using all these words, but they may not mean quite what, they th- what we think they mean, and by using them again and again, <clears throat> we miss the power. We settle for a, sh- a, sh- a weak, weak-sauce definition of what would be a transforming truth of our faith, and repentance is most definitely one of those words. We say it all the time, but what does it mean? You know, if I asked you, what does repentance mean, what would you say? Um, most of us would probably say something like, well, it means feeling really bad and really sorry for my sin. But that's a pale shadow of what repentance really means biblically. The Bible gives us something that's oh so much more. One of the effects of being a pastor is that I spend a fair amount of time talking to people who've done stuff they couldn't imagine they would have actually ever done. People who have dropped an atom bomb in the middle of their life and say, how did I get here? And you know what? Every one of them feels bad. Pretty much every one of them wishes they could change the pain that they've now caused. But only some of them are really repenting. And the point this morning, the thesis is just this. God meets real repentance with grace. That God meets real repentance with grace. And so Psalm 51 shows us three things that help us understand what repentance really is. And in looking at them, we'll talk about each of them, but we'll also contrast them with false repentance, which is honestly far more often what we usually do. So this morning, we're going to look at these three things. Recognizing ourselves, receiving grace, and then revealing God. Recognizing ourselves, receiving grace, revealing God. Let's start with recognizing ourselves. One of the first things that we have to get for this psalm to hit us right is this psalm starts at a certain place. It's really easy to take a true scripture and apply it in the wrong way to our lives and actually not get its power. Understand, and Psalm 51 won't work for us if we don't realize that it starts with sin being bluntly apparent. This psalm starts where we left off last week, where the prophet Nathan had come to David And said, you are the man. David has no denying, no escaping, no blinding his eyes, pretending. He knows that he's done these things. He knows that he has ended up in a spot that he could never have thought he'd end up in. It starts with, you are the man. Sin in all its ugliness. Now, some of us in our congregation are there right now. We realize, yes, that's me. I have done all this. I have, I have blown it up. Just like David dropped an atom bomb in the middle of his life and nothing would ever be the same, that's where I am. That's some of us here. But you know what? A lot of us aren't at the starting point of the psalm. We're way back over here saying, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I know in an intellectual sense I'm a sinner. I, I mean, I just prayed that confession of sin, and I wasn't really lying about it but I also don't have any of that just deep pit in my stomach that tells me I'm the man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I do a little fibs. I do a little things. I don't do quiet times like I should. I, but, I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't gone and slept with my neighbor's wife. I haven't gone and set people up on the battlefield. I mean, David, yeah, he is the man. Me, Sure, I do a little stuff wrong, but all in all, God's pretty happy to have me on his side. What do you do if you're over here? Because you know what? Most of the time, this is where I am. We have this amazing capacity to fool ourselves on our sin, to rationalize away things, to not see it in its depth. What would Jesus say to us if we're over here? We're not even at the starting line. He'd probably say two things. First off, he'd say, oh, really? Really? You wouldn't? Hmm. Let me remind you what I said in Matthew 5 and 6, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say to us, he said, I reminded you that if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. I reminded you that if you react in anger to someone else, you've murdered them in your heart. In other words, Jesus would say, Really, you wouldn't do those things? Actually, you know what? Yes, you would. The only difference between you and me and David is a difference in our power, not our hearts. If you were in David's spot and if I were in David's spot, we would do the exact same things David did because we have, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 6, the exact same heart. The problem isn't that David was worse than we are. The problem is just David had more ability to act on the exact same thing that you and I have. If that weren't enough, Jesus would say, you know what else? sooner or later the shoe will drop and we will realize that we are like that. Now, life has a remarkable way of bringing these things to light, but even if we somehow skated through the whole of our life and never had that shoe drop, the Bible says that in the end, in eternity, every one of us will see our sin. Every one of us will realize, I am the man, I'm the woman, I am. I had no idea how dark my whole heart was. Sin will become apparent, Jesus would say. The only question is, is it going to become apparent in this life where there's time for repentance? Or is it going to be in the next life when that time is already gone? But either way, sooner or later we're gonna realize this is me. I'm right here, I have done it. What what do we do then? What do we do when we realize I am that man? Well, here's what we usually do. What we usually do is something like this. As soon as we realize what we are, shame comes roaring in. I can't believe that they now know that I'm that. Or Maybe even I can't believe that I know now that I'm that. And as shame comes roaring in, shame causes pain. It hurts. And just like when you stick your hand in a candle or a fire, you pull back. So what we usually do is we find any way we can to get away from that shame. There are at least three ways it often works out. One way it works out is we just start to minimize it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did that, but that's not really me. That's not who I really am. That's not my heart. It was just a moment, or if that's not enough, we start to blame shift. Well, you know what? If she hadn't mixed me that drink, I would. if she hadn't worn that thing, then I wouldn't. Oh, oh, come on. That's as old as history itself. In the Garden of Edom, Adam, Adam and Eve, having for the first time had sin come into the world and shame come crashing in after it, Adam said, well, it's the woman's fault. The woman said, oh, it's the snake's fault. And ever since then, we have been blaming each other and our circumstances. We try to minimize it. Or if that doesn't work, We try to bury ourselves in life and just forget it. Um, Many of you would be familiar with Leo Tolstoy's famous novel, Anna Karenina. And whether you've gotten through the whole thing or not, you may know its very famous first line. First line, all happy families are alike in the same way. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its unique way. And Tolstoy goes on to explain why, in fact, this family of his novel is so unhappy it's because Prince Olonski has been, as one translator puts it from the Russian, carrying on an in intrigue with a young French girl. And then Tolstoy goes on to describe exactly how Prince Alonsky results to being undone and unmasked. <clears throat> there happened to him at that instant what does happen to people when they're unexpectedly caught in something very disgraceful. He did not succeed in adapting his face to the position in which he was placed by his wife by the discovery of his fault. Instead, his face utterly involuntarily assumed its habitual, good-humored, and therefore idiotic smile. And Tolstoy goes on to explain that he, in fact, dealt with this by burying himself in the work of life, by doing the things of the day, by not thinking about what must go on to forget himself, Tolstoy says, in the daily dream of life. Sometimes we just try to push it down with activity. Or sometimes if neither of those is working, we just run. We flee from it. Um, If a thousand pages of Tolstoy is too much, let me give you another classic of Western literature, The Office. Now, in The Office, one episode, I remember Michael Scott has been found out by his girlfriend, Jan. He has been unmasked, he has been found out that he is in fact broke and in debt. And what's his response to this? Well, then suddenly he hears a freight train rumbling by, and he takes off at a dead run, running after the freight train with dreams of jumping on the train and riding the rails for the rest of his life so that he never has to deal with it again. You know, that's the stuff of farce, except the writers put it in because that's the stuff of us. When we feel shame, it's so much easier to minimize it. It's so much easier to just push it down. It's so much easier to run away from it. But in Psalm 51, David will have none of that. Look down at the text. Look what David does instead. He starts off in verse 3. He says, my sin is always before me. David says, it can't be unknown. I can't forget it. I can't suddenly act like I'm not aware of it. I know what's true. And it leads him to verse 4, this text that we've actually wrestled with several times now over the last three weeks, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And and you and I go, David, what about hashtag David 2, where you abused your power to put this situation in place with Bathsheba? What about being king and therefore using your power to murder one of your best friends, Uriah? What about the fact that you used that further to put Joab, your general, into a set-up situation where a lot of innocent soldiers died to cover what you did? David, what do you mean against you? You only have I sinned. That makes absolutely no sense to me. Now, remember verse 3. David's not saying, oh, I didn't do those things. His sin is always before him. David admits it. He knows all that, yet he recognizes this truth. Beyond all of that... He still sinned against God. One commentator puts it this way. He says, sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you will still be tried for treason because you have betrayed the entire country that has nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It is overthrowing the rule of the one to whom you owe everything. And so, yes, David has sinned against all of them, but in the end, the charge is still treason against God. Against you have I sinned. Against you only have I sinned. And this leads him to this terrifying reality that he admits in the second half of the verse God, whatever you do next is right. God, you are justified and you are right entirely in whatever you are going to do next he admits that it is God's entire right to kill him on the spot for what he's done. And we know that we have come a long way towards biblical repentance when we start saying, God, I deserve nothing here. Every breath I take is because you have given it to me. You are right in whatever you do. You're right if you take away my family. You're right if you take away my livelihood. You're right if you take away my very life. You're right if you even were to put me in hell forever for my sin. Biblical repentance starts with saying, I know you're right. And in fact, I know that my problems are even deeper than I thought. Look at the next verse. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now, don't misread that verse. It does not say the act of conceiving you was a sin. The act of conceiving you was something that God created in Genesis 1 and 2 and said it's good and very good. What the verse says is, yet, because of who we are, from the moment I was conceived, I was sinful. From the moment I was conceived, I never was right with God. I never was good. I never deserved a thing out of him. Love how St. Augustine in the 4th century wrote about it in his book, Confessions. He said, when I did not get my way, he's talking about when he was an infant. Um, By the way, I don't know about you all, but having had kids, I just don't have trouble with the doctrine of original sin anymore. (laughs) You don't have to teach them to sin, right? You have to teach, we have to teach ourselves to be good. Sin comes easy and natural because it's who we are. So Augustine writes, when I did not get my way as an infant, either because I was not understood or lest it might be harmful to me, I used to be indignant with my seniors for their disobedience and with free people who were not slaves to my interests, and I would revenge myself upon them by weeping. That this is the way of infants I've learned from those who I've been able to watch. I was sitting on a park bench in Central Park in New York on Friday, and I watched a young child decide to play in traffic on Central Park West, whose mother therefore grabbed him and said, okay, back in the stroller... And he used everything in his power to object to this. He did the boneless, he did the stiff, he did the wail, he did the scream. <laughs> because this is who we are. Um, you know, if, if Augustine in the fourth century is too ancient for you, making the rounds of the internet again in the past few weeks are the toddler's rules of possession. Have you heard this? If you have a young, young sibling, listen up. Here are the toddler's rules of possession. One, if I like it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Three, if I can take it from you, it's mine. Four, if I had it a little while ago, it's mine. Five, if it's mine, it must never, ever, ever appear to be yours in any way. Six, if I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. Seven, if it looks just like mine, it's mine. Eight, if I saw it first, it's mine. Nine, if you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. And ten, if it's broken, it's yours. (laughs) But David admits, this comes so naturally to us because it's who we are. He says, God, you are right that my problems sink so much deeper than I ever thought. They come to the very nature of who I am. He says, verse six, repentance starts with truth. And the truth is we're broken. The only question is whether we already see it or whether way back here trying to pretend it's not true of us. Repentance starts with truth. And David says, you are true God and you are right in everything you judge. Which then leads us to the question of what can save us from who we are. And it's the second big thing of this Psalm verses seven to 12, receiving grace. Now, truth is, that's not how we usually act again. We usually act with two things that paradoxically both go on at the same time. The first is a self-loathing. I can't believe I am that. I can't believe I would do that. God would never have enough grace or forgiveness for somebody like me. Yeah, you know what? I might still come to church. I might still go through the motions. I might be around the things of God, but there's none of the warmth of a relationship with my Savior because, you know what, I feel like in the end I'm not really worth saving. That might be for all these nice, cleaned-up, good-looking people here, but it ain't for me. Now, if that's not enough, then we multiply that or we weirdly combine that with, so I've got to go ahead and make things right myself. Somehow or other, because the ledger now has a great big loss on one side, I need to do enough things to sort of balance it back out. So we get busy, we work hard, we start praying, we start trying to show them that this time I'm going to be different, that this time I'm going to get it together. If I could just string together enough winning games, enough good weeks, enough seasons, eventually I'll balance it out and get above 500, and just maybe I'll be okay with the good guys. Except the charge on the other side of the ledger is treason. And I don't care how much good you do, have you ever erased treason? So David says something else. David says it twice in this poem, verse 1 and verse 9, God, I need you to blot out my transgressions. I need you to erase the other side of the ledger because it doesn't matter how much stuff I build up on this side, it's never going to be enough. I mean, think what David doesn't write here. He doesn't write, well, okay, sure, Uriah, but what about those tens of thousands of your enemies that I killed? He doesn't write, well, sure, Bathsheba, but what about those you know, 50 to 80 or however many psalms I wrote? David does not try to say psalms plus Goliath plus 10,000 enemies of the Lord is greater than Uriah and Bathsheba. Instead, he says, I need something to be done for me. David admits that he cannot do what it will take to fix this. He can't, it's not in him. It's not in you, it's not in me. David needs something to be done to him, not by him, to fix his problem. What does he need? Verse seven, this incredibly curious verse, he says, cleanse me with hyssop, then I shall be clean. What's hyssop? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we, we came up with all sorts of options in the preaching cohort. We said it's, you know, when the guy whose mom didn't teach him manners, and by the way, my mom tried pulls the bread and sops it up. What is hyssop? Well, it's actually a plant. It's this little bushy plant that you could use to dip into things and use it almost like a paintbrush. And if you look through your Bible, you find the very first time the Bible ever mentions this word is in Exodus chapter 12. This is the passage that establishes what's known as the Passover. God is going to go through Egypt and bring death for sin. And God tells his people, the Israelites, as they face the coming death, he says there's only one way you'll be saved. Notice the Israelites are slaves. They're the quote-unquote innocent party, the aggrieved party in this. God is coming to bring judgment on the Egyptians, but when God comes to bring death, captor and slave alike will die because they've all sinned. And God says here's the only way for you to be saved. You will take a lamb And you will sacrifice it. And then you will take hyssop. And you will then brush the blood of that lamb on the doors of your house. And when I pass through the land, death will not come. So what is David saying? David knows this. This is the sort of foundational piece of Israel's national lore. And David says, I need a lamb to die for me. Because I can't do enough. Now, an Israelite would always have to puzzle over that. Why in the world would a lamb die for me? Why would that cause God to forgive my sin? That doesn't make any sense. The lamb's just an animal. It wouldn't make sense until 1,000 years later when John the Baptist would see Jesus walk by and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or the book of Hebrews would say, How could an Israelite going through the sacrifices year upon year upon year think, Well, this will work? How could the blood of animals take away sin? Because they point to what David was looking to. The greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, whose blood on the cross would take away the sins of the world. We have to be cleansed by blood. We can't do it ourselves. There is no way to receive grace except the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And David looked to that, and in repentance he said, That is my hope which quickly leads us to the third thing, revealing God. If this has happened to us, we cannot stop ourselves from telling about God to the world. Now, again, this is not the way we normally do it. False repentance looks like this. Wow, I've got a reputation to save here. Uh, let's, let's get past this and move on and bury it as quick as I can because I still need to you know get through my life. Um, Kurt Thompson, who some of you know, Starts his book, The Soul of Shame, with a series of anecdotes. Here's the very first of them. No, I'm not willing to do that. He was succinct and clear. I inquired what he felt as he imagined telling his wife about the affair. Terrified. Of what, I asked. He could only describe in vague terms the abject sense of humiliation he would have to endure should this illicit relationship come to light. What is it that makes your skin crawl about that? It's that it's all about him still. Look how much I would have to suffer if this comes to light. And do you get what's warped about that? Does God already know? Well, yeah, please say yes. He knows everything. God knows, yet somehow we're okay when the Lord of the entire universe knows what's going on, but we can't let Sally from our community group know it. We're okay if the God of all creation who has the power to give us grace or send us to hell knows, boy, I can't let the guy at work know. We are still, and we never get it fully rid of ourselves. We're just so about self. And for one more time, David in Psalm 51 will have none of it. Look what he does instead. Three things. He says, you've purged me with hyssop. Now I'm clean, therefore... First, I'm going to teach transgressors your ways. I'm going to tell everybody what's true. I'm going to proclaim this as loud as I can and as far as I can that this is the hope of the world. Second, verse 14 and 15, I'm going to sing. I'm going to praise God because as the hymn goes, how can I keep from singing? You know, it's actually a funny thing. Um, if, If you don't know this, Non-Christians find our singing weird. I was talking to a gal who became a Christian here last year, and it was about three weeks before she became a Christian, and she looked at me, and she said, what's with the singing thing? You know, and we live in a culture, by the way, that we don't live in a singing culture. We live in a listening-to-music culture, not a singing culture. So it's hard for us to get this, and it's incredibly hard for non-Christians to understand, but once your heart has been transformed by this grace... You cannot stop singing. And third, look at the last two verses of this section, verses 16 and 17. David says, It comes with humility. Our world desperately needs Christians who don't come in saying, Look, I dressed up fine, I look clean, I've got my act together. Wouldn't you like to be like me? Our world needs Christians who will humble ourselves, who will come in and we will say, this is who I am with all my mess because there's nothing of me left in it. I want the praise to go to God, so I'm happy to show you who I am with all the warts and all the flaws, all the grossness because God has saved me from it. That, that is what repentance looks like. So let's sum up because we've got to close. We've given you two lists, false repentance and true repentance. False repentance minimizes sin. It runs from it. It hides from it. It gets busy and ignores it. False repentance goes and tries to be so hard on ourselves and then to somehow earn our way out of it. False repentance in the end still is about me and making sure that I'm okay at the end of the day. Or true repentance. True repentance says no excuses, no blame game, no shifting it, This is who I am, and the problem is deeper than I could ever admit. And I receive the grace of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for me. No excuses, no claim on it. It's just a gift. And because of that, I'm going to teach the world about him. I'm going to sing in praise to him, and I am going to be humble and show people who I really am. So here's the question. Which list is you? Which list list resonates? And here's the thing if you listen to that whole thing and you say, wow, I'm so glad that list two is me, it's the ultimate proof that actually you're in the middle of list one. Because every one of us is doing list one. The only question is how often, how much, what degree. Because there is only one human being in history who never did that first list. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one human being in history, in fact, who never needed to do the second list because he never sinned. And it is that Jesus Christ who didn't need Psalm 51, who took it on himself on the cross so that when you and I pray Psalm 51, it would be true. And that's the God we praise. So let's pray together. God, our Father, We confess that false repentance is much more us than true repentance. But we also confess and know that Jesus is a great and awesome Savior. So we come one more time in worship to the God who has saved us from our sin. We come to worship you, Lord No excuses, no rationalizations, just knowing you have given us grace. And so we praise you today. In Jesus' name, amen.